The Parents Show on Mix 92.6. Sponsored by Raiden Solicitors, award-winning specialist family lawyers. See RaidenSolicitors.co.uk. You're listening to The Parents Show on Mix 92.6. I'm Neil Roger. Uh, this evening we're joined by Sean and Jenny from Fingertips in Harpenden. They're going to be talking to us a bit about getting uh, local kids involved in nature. Sean and Jenny, thanks for joining us. Do you want to introduce yourselves? Hi, I'm Jenny. Um, we've sort of set up two schools in I think called Fingertips Preschool Forest School in Hartmden and Fingertips Woodland Nursery. We started in 2010. We were doing as a creative arts group and then we developed it into Forest School and then obviously later on we developed it into Woodland Nursery. So it's been a fantastic experience. This is Sean. Hi, yeah, I'm Sean and I'm the Forest School Lead Practitioner. I take children out into the woods and try to keep them safe for the parents. (laughs) So look, I guess the first question I have to ask, I kind of guessed the clues in the name, but what exactly is a forest school? Right, so for anybody who hasn't heard of the forest school approach, it's a child-led learning process, which is in an outdoor environment. So that's all weathers, rain, snow, sun, all weathers, we're outside. It offers opportunities for the children's growth. Uh, It supports play, exploration, and children learn to manage their own risk. So, for example, children know that if it's raining, they shouldn't climb on a log or climb a tree because those trees and the logs are slippery. So it basically, it's an approach which helps to develop a child's self-confidence and their self-esteem. We use tools with the children, such as saws, we use hammers, we use palm drills, we use knives, we use potato peelers, age-appropriate. And we support the children through the different craft activities. If a child says they can't do it, we then give them extra support until they actually get a positive outcome with the activity. And this helps their confidence and their self-esteem, and it takes them through the stages of, I can't do it, to, I want to have a go, to, I can do that. Sounds fantastic. So I guess you're, so you're actually taking them out into the woods, right? You're getting the coats on, getting the gloves on, out away from the city streets and the town streets, actually into the woodland in amongst it. Yeah, so we have a preschool. And at that preschool, once that session starts, I will drive down there because I might have already been doing a forest school session up at the woods. I will drive down there and I will collect some of the children and I will drive them back up to the woods where they've all been dressed and ready and they come to the woods and we just have lots of fun. To stay dry, we might have a tarp up uh, in the woodland area and that's where they'll eat their lunch. So some of the children will be out for six hours a day. It's not like we're going out for 45 minutes. We're going out for a session is three hours, but sometimes the children will do back-to-back sessions. So they might want to be out for six hours in that. Our favourite question, I think, is what do you actually do for six hours? But as I said, it's a child-led approach and we will always have activities planned, but very often we won't actually get to do our activities because the children are finding so much to do themselves that they actually lead the sessions. That is the idea, the children lead the sessions and we do what they want. Sounds fantastic. So I've got to ask this, how on earth do you get into this? How have you become these kind of woodland forestry team leaders for kids? I think it's, it was a real developmental process. So we started with the preschool. Um, I did my, um, I'd already had got my MVQ in early years. Then I decided I wanted to do teacher training And then Sean decided he wanted to do his training. And then he's going to tell you a little bit more about the approach that he found through the training that he did. So we were so interested in how children developed. I read loads of psychology books. How can we best um, help them to become who they're meant to be, particularly focusing on their personalities and, and understanding themselves And so through that, we've sort of found the forest school approach. Sean found the forest school approach, actually, through his what he was studying. Yeah, so so what happened was I was actually doing my open university degree in early years, and I was studying the section on different approaches. But then I came across this little paragraph, which was about the Scandinavian outdoor approach. And I thought, that sounds amazing. I wonder if we could do something like that in this country. So I started researching it and I thought, yeah, we could be the first to do this in this country. And I started researching it. And then 
I found forest schools and I thought, oh, they're already doing it. This is fantastic. And so I said to Jenny, Jenny, look at this approach. This is the forest school approach. We need to look at this. And I did some further reading and, and Jenny said, do you know what? Go and do the course, train up, become a forest school practitioner. And do you find it's proving popular? Because, I mean, it sounds, it's almost like one of those ideas that I've, so I've never heard of it before. Have you found that people have taken to it? Yeah, I mean, the thing is, it's not just that it's popular. It's essential for children's development, I think. It's not just about going into the woods and, and sort of then sort of trip-trapping around. They're actually learning so much more. All the sciences that are out in nature, brains develop in a different way. So there, there's a huge developmental leap. So we've had children with quite serious special educational needs problems and uh, and I'd often say to mum look can we get them out in the forest and that's the first thing I want we, we don't take them into the forest till they're three because it's a forest course and they have to understand the rules but there are children that perhaps couldn't access those rules but we've still supported them and taken them into the forest and then you know a child that couldn't speak who was whose English was a second language within two weeks of being in the forest was saying jump off a log you know we'd worked for six months with this child you know indoors doing this and that program, trying to really support them. They get them out in the woods and their confidence started growing and they started running around. They started making friends, enjoying the other children's company. And then they were speaking, you know, speaking clearly. And that has happened time and time again. Yeah. And what I would say, I'd like to add to that, is that what we find is like, if you think about it, an indoor setting, it has its home corner. So the children, they can pretend to wash up or they can pretend to cook or they can and they've got their spoons they've got their plates in the woods we don't have that we have sticks we have logs so the children they start to narrate their play in the woods so the speech and language development we found has just been absolutely massive and it's been quite interesting that over the last 11 years since we've been doing this Ofsted have actually really and and the early years, they have really tried to include more and more outdoor play over that time because they have seen the benefits and they've written it more into the into the curriculum because they have seen so many benefits for children in playing outdoors. And on the back of being outdoors, they're happy, they're content, they're enjoying themselves. Even when I go into the forest and I sit there and have my packed lunch with the children, my face just begins to shine because you just like it's just mm. a, a sort of very relaxing place and you know that it's impacting me as a team member as well as the children and out of that because there's that content happiness confidence they're learning they're ta- mm. learning to take risks their brains developing a different way because naturally they're in an environment where they want to learn because you know so we're we're supporting their learning, if you like, and we're they're, they're just, it's all kind of much more organic, much more holistic approach. Mm. And then we see that benefit come back into the setting. So when they come into the setting, they're much more confident, aren't they? They're much, they're much more, more chatty and they're more but also, alive. Also, on top great. of that as well, what we find is that, like, when it comes to writing or they, they will write with sticks in the mud. They'll write with sticks in the mud. We'll say to them, could you get us 10 stones? They'll go and they'll count 10 stones. They still learn everything that they will learn inside. They're still fully prepared for school when they leave us. Most of the children that leave us can actually write their, their names. They can count to 10. It is nice for them to be indoors as well, I think. But I think that this approach gives them a really healthy balance and a good grounding. And it helps make them robust as well. So... One of the things they say is that children are ready to start writing their name when they can support their body weight. Well, we do a lot of climbing stuff. We put slack lines up. We put rope swings up. They're, they're ready to do all of these things. Uh, no, I just it's so interesting to hear you talk about it because it sounds like a lot of fun. And Jenny, to your point, you know as adults yourself, just without maybe being able to articulate it too well, there's something just lovely about being out and about in nature but it's kind of obvious I guess because I know that my little boy he absolutely loves it being out and about but you know from your experience what are the types of things that kids seem to love about being out and about in nature? I think it's a place where they can't fail so you know you're in a classroom and there's so much you can fail at and you've got children with all different styles of learning and we're not all like that there's sort of, I suppose, 50% of the nation, maybe even 70% that are hands-on learners. And so actually being out in nature, touching things, feeling things, climbing things, you know, being able to experience life as opposed to looking at life 
And that just makes a real impact on the children's development because they can work things out for themselves. They can do things for themselves. They can take their own risks. They can take their own challenges. And that safe risks that we allow them to do kind of helps them to really think for themselves. Our children really think for themselves. They can work things out. They're just brilliant, you know, and we talk to them in an intellectual way. So we don't try and hold back and, you know, use dumbed down words for them because we believe that they're capable of learning like that and that in nature is. So when we're talking about nature, we'll use the actual words for things and insects and, you know, what we're actually doing. So we just see it time and time again. And we had a child who had a prosthetic leg. We always say yes. We want as many children as possible to access. To make it as inclusive as possible. It's so inclusive. Mm. And so we've watched these children, you know, this child that came with this prosthetic leg sort of go from stumbling around to swinging off a rope swing by the time, you know, two or three weeks later. Mm. And it was just incredible to watch a joy for us as well, like a massive joy because you see their achievements and that little child's achievement for him was just massive, you know. Um, and it's also worth to say that he had an arm with a couple of fingers, but it finished at his elbow. But he was swinging and holding on with that, and he'd learned a way of swinging off a rope swing, climbing on a log <laughs> and jumping off the log oh, it was on so the rope delightful. swing. He, he couldn't jump initially because of his prosthetic leg. That inhibited him being able to jump. He worked out a way of where he could jump and spring, which he couldn't do before. So there's no limits, really, to what children can do. Why should they be in nature? Because they should. That's how we all began. And their brain is, you know, clicking off here, there and everywhere because they're getting stimulated. I mean, it sounds like the benefits are massive to some of the kids. I mean, it was what we were talking about here. When we had Ofsted, when they come, they do come to Ofsted, when they inspect us. We've had two that recent... level, Ofsted are kind of looking at you guys and you doing all that. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, but we're a proper registered preschool yeah. and a proper registered nursery. And they've come to the forest school both times. And the very first time, the first Ofsted inspector, she said, um, she just lay back in the sun like that and went, this is magical. And it was just a really nice experience. Uh, uh, yeah, and then we had um, this the Ofsted inspector that just came in December. You know, one of the things she said was that, we we give children opportunities that they wouldn't experience at other settings, which was just, I think that's just a massive thing to say, you know, and for us, that just made us feel actually what we're doing is... is, is yeah, is, gratified what yeah, we're doing yes. and how we're doing it. We're always pushing for better for the children and, and sort of trying to make the environment better for the children and, and doing things with children that will help them to grow and be confident human beings, really. Um, and so one of the Ofsted inspectors turned around and sort of said, you know, this is a place I want my children to come. And I thought, wow, wow, yeah. that is such a massive compliment because, you know, they could see the children were happy and confident. And one of the things they said, they said they're so well behaved. And that is because we take this soft and gentle approach, but really beautiful boundaries. They're just really soft and gentle boundaries that mm. we lay down. And that's all part of the forest school approach. It's talking to them. Basically, we'll talk to them and say, well, what do you think about that? How do you think you could have done that differently? And if you've hurt your friend, how would you like to solve that problem? Rather than telling the children what they should do, we're trying to um, stimulate their intellectual ability to work things out for themselves. And they do. And they're so beautiful and gentle that's one of the things that came up in the Ofsted report as well was that the children were holding these insects like they were precious jewels you know because they understand that these things need to be looked after and cared for because that's part of our approach is to sort of teach them how to look after nature how to look after the environment with kids as well they're like one of the things that they always struggle to get on board with is that the world is a bit bigger than just them right I guess this is a kind of way that that just goes in instinctively. Definitely. And, and actually, the children begin teaching their parents. Uh, yeah. you know, for instance, uh, they're told not to step on the bluebells and, <laughs> oh, nice. and things like that. Yes. So yeah. the children then turn around to their parents and say, look, mum, dad, don't step on the bluebells. Yes, yeah, so we, we, we're, we, we're just coming up to the bluebell season now. And so over this half term, we will be teaching the children about bluebells being a protected species because we're lucky enough in our woods to have bluebells 
So we teach them that they're protected species. We have to look after them because they aren't made. I think the UK has 65% of the bluebells in the world. So it's, so they are protected, not allowed to dig them up, not allowed to pick them or do anything. So they go home, and when they go on their family walks, we've had parents coming back saying, I got told off by my child for treading on the bluebells. And I said, don't tread on the bluebells, they're protected. you know. And so it's good because the children are learning. They are learning things like that and how to look after the world around them. Also litter, you know, they will tell us if they see litter and we then collect it we don't leave it if because we want them to see that we're being proactive so they are learning a lot of things about the environment and the world that we live in so you mentioned um, your woods there whereabouts is this all happening right so our woodland is that we use is up on ambrose yes yeah, yeah. a tiny woods and tiny ambrose woods lane just by the uh, off ambrose lane it's beautiful beautiful little woodland uh, it's a protected area it's, it's got tree preservation orders on it it's, it's a semi-ancient woodland very small but it's perfect for what we do. And look, we're running out of time, but I need to ask you, this sounds so amazing. So how can people find out more about fingertips and think about getting their own kids involved in what you do? Well, oh. we have a website, uh, which is www.fingertipspreschool.co.uk. Um, and on there, we've got a video, actually, of testimonials from parents. So it's out in the forest and it's actually showing you me and Sean talking and also some parents just explaining what the forest school approach is about and just how much they enjoy and how it's developed their children's learning. So that's a good thing to go on. Also, we've got a walkthrough video so you can walk through Woodland Nursery and see what that's all like. You can contact us by emailing inquiries at fingertipspreschool.co.uk. You could then come and visit us. So you'll get a talk with me and I'll walk you through and walk you around what we do. Well, look, I mean, the work you're doing there sounds amazing and it, I really get how kids would benefit from that, but you've articulated it really well. I guess, you know, before we sign off, just for parents listening, is there any tips you might give them for anyone listening who's thinking about trying to get their own kids out into nature? Yeah, 100%. So the main thing that we would say is make sure that your children are dressed properly. So if they're warm, they will be happy. So we have had children who have been dressed in full-on waterproofs and they have then just sat and laid in puddles, which are about two inches deep, properly getting soaked and muddy. So we would say do that. So dress first, that's the most important thing. Then I would say that if you go on a website like uh, the Woodland Trust or type in nature detectives, you can download and print spotter sheets and you can go into the woods, take the spotter sheets with you and look for those bugs or look for that. There's actually a poo one as well where you can find different types of animal poo. I would say sign up for things like the Woodland Trust on Facebook and you will get all the local events in your area. So you sign up to the local area and take your children to the local wildlife areas a bug pot yeah take them with a bug pot and see what you can find just see what you can find moving logs around turning over stones and yeah it will surprise you how the children will actually find bugs that you probably won't see they will find the smallest little things yeah they will so so it's basically getting out there being dressed appropriately getting out there and just doing it and just enjoying it and if it's raining just look at it as another learning experience, you know, and for the children. Don't be afraid and don't, to let them get dirty. And don't be afraid to <laughs> let them get dirty. Let them get dirty. Really that muddy. is really, because that is all part of helping children become robust in what they do. And it's all part of their learning. So I would say just get out there. Just get out there and have fun. Any weather, apart from lightning, again. <laughs> Understood. Oh, look, thank you so much. It, it sounds fantastic what you're up to. And I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us today. Thank you so much for joining us on The Parent Show. Thank, oh, you. thank you so much. Bye -bye. It's been great. Bye. A very warm welcome to The Parents Show on Mix 92.6. I'm Lydia Curry, and I'm really delighted this evening to be joined by Lena Gardner, who is with Raiden Solicitors here in St. Albans. Lena, thanks for joining us on The Parents Show. Thanks for having me, Lydia. So now tell our listeners a little bit about your role within Raiden Solicitors. Sure. So I'm a legal director here at Raiden Solicitors. I'm a specialist family law solicitor. Raiden's is a specialist family law firm. That's all that we do. 
I've been with the firm for around nine years. Um, as you mentioned, I work in the St. Albans office and I also live locally in St. Albans. And um, I deal with a wide range of family law cases, including many cases that unfortunately involve um, issues of domestic abuse, which is what we're going to be talking about today. Yeah, unfortunately, it's not a subject we like covering on the parents show, but it's one that we feel we absolutely should be covering. And that's why it's great to speak to you today, Lena. Now, can you make it really nice and simple for our listeners? When you speak about domestic abuse, what exactly can that entail? And can you give us an idea of the, the spectrum of actions that can be included in domestic abuse? Yeah, so... Domestic abuse, it's now widely recognised to constitute a really wide spectrum of actions and behaviours. And this is really something that has developed over time. Previously, when we thought of domestic abuse, we would think primarily about physical abuse. However, that's no longer the case. It's now very well recognised that this type of behaviour can encompass all manner of different behaviours and actions um, So we now see lots of cases involving psychological abuse, sexual abuse, financial abuse and emotional abuse. So a really wide ranging pattern of behaviour. Thanks for explaining that, Lena. And I'd like to know how common is domestic abuse? How often are you seeing it in, in your work, in your everyday work? Unfortunately, I am seeing it more and more. I would now say that probably the majority of my cases involve some form of domestic abuse. It's obviously very difficult to quantify in society generally, but we do have some really good stats on this from the Office for National Statistics. So to give you an example, it is estimated that approximately one in five adults have experienced domestic abuse since the age of 16 years. So really, really common. That's breathtaking, actually. I I didn't expect you to say it was that frequent an incident. That's that's definitely sobering to hear. And when we're talking about domestic abuse, are we talking about abuse against women or is it also against men? And what would you say is important for us to understand domestic abuse in relation to gender? So domestic abuse um, can also be perpetrated against men. I think it's widely assumed that domestic abuse is something that only affects women, but we know that that's not the case. And indeed, I have represented a number of male victims of domestic abuse. What we do know is that domestic abuse against men is less common than abuse against women, but it's still fairly significant numbers. According to some of the data that I looked at, there were about 700,000 men who reported being a victim of domestic abuse in 2022 alone. So we are talking um, fairly large numbers. Thanks for that, Lena. And I think it's really important for us to remember that as well. And it probably, the more we talk openly about it, the more it's likely to be recorded um, that men experience domestic abuse. Absolutely. I think that historically there's been a bit of a stigma surrounding domestic abuse generally, but also um, domestic abuse perpetrated against men. And the more that we can you know, talk about the, these issues, the more that people will be able to feel that they are able to come forward and speak out about their experiences. Yeah, absolutely. And you mentioned the different categories of or different types of abuse right at the beginning of our, our discussion. And I wonder within those categories, are there subtle forms of domestic abuse that you might not actually think of as abuse? Because I think our listeners would be surprised to think of financial abuse or other types of non-physical violence, because as you say, I think the vast majority of people just associate abuse as being physical. Yeah, that's right. So domestic abuse can really take a number of different forms. And as you said, it can be very subtle behaviours that in isolation, perhaps um, wouldn't seem significant. But when they constitute a pattern of behavior over time, that's when it does become, you know, a, a real form of abusive behavior. So some examples would include things like keeping you from seeing or communicating with your friends and family, insulting you, putting you down, belittling you, 
placing your income in their own bank account and denying you access to it, preventing you from working or limiting the hours that you work, restricting your daily activities, um, spying on you, kind of keeping tabs on you, using social media to keep tabs on you, and perhaps looking through your phone and checking pictures and messaging and messages and calls, and also kind of questioning you endlessly about the things that you've been doing. So all of these things can form a pattern of behavior that constitutes domestic abuse. And one of the labels that we, we attach to that kind of abuse is coercive and controlling behavior. Coercive and controlling behavior is now a criminal offense in its own right. And that is really an act or a pattern of acts of threats, humiliation, intimidation, or other abuse that is used to harm, punish, or frighten the victim. So it's a really, really wide range of behaviours that can be very subtle. I think listeners would be very surprised to hear all those different types of behaviour. And I'd like to ask you, why is it important that it's a pattern? It seems like you're, you emphasise the word pattern in this and why is it important? So the reason it's important that it's a pattern is because if you were to take one or two of the things that I've described in isolation then they may not seem like particularly significant types of behavior. But when they form a pattern of behavior over time, where the perpetrator is really chipping away at the victim over and over again, that's when this really tips into an abusive relationship. They're all really important to bear in mind. And and I mean, the idea of monitoring your partner on social media or trying to make sure that your partner doesn't meet friends or family, I think are really, really interesting ones and ones that can be done in a very subtle manner. It doesn't necessarily have to be that the person is saying you are not allowed to see your friends, but it transpires that it's so difficult to see friends and family that they actually end up ruling it out. Yeah, exactly that. And I think that, you know, technology has really made it easier for perpetrators of this type of behavior. Because nowadays with um, social media and also, for example, the Find My Phone app that you know many people have on their phone, we see that a lot where the perpetrator of abuse is keeping tabs on the victim by using things like Find My Phone. I've had cases where um, perpetrators have even gone so far as to put a tracker on the victim's car so that they know where they are at, at all times. So yeah, technology has has really opened up this type of behaviour. That's pretty shocking, putting a tracker on somebody's car. And I hadn't thought of the Find My Phone app being used in that way. So I'm sure that'll, that'll be um, very surprising to our listeners as well. So what would you say is the first step that anybody should take if they think they're being subjected to domestic abuse. So the really good news is that because this is now widely recognized that this is, you know, commonplace, that many relationships, unfortunately, are abusive relationships. The good news is that there is so much support out there now. So the first step is to speak to somebody, whether that be a family member or a friend or a professional, such as a solicitor like myself, a doctor, or the police, that would really be the first step. There are also some um, amazing organisations out there that offer free advice to victims of domestic abuse, such as the National Domestic Abuse Helpline, um, which is run by an organisation called Refuge. There's also another organisation called Mankind, who have a phone line dedicated to male victims of domestic abuse. So there are so many support services out there which is incredible. There's also lots of information available on the NHS website as well. That's a a really broad spectrum of people to go to. And it sounds like starting to talk about it is the most important first step, be it a friend, family or or the police. Absolutely. I think sometimes taking that first step can be the scariest thing. But by telling somebody what's going on, you will then have access to the whole range of support services that I've mentioned. And obviously seeking early legal advice is really important as well because there are lots of things that we can do as solicitors to help victims of domestic abuse. Thanks for that, Lena. Well, can you describe some of the possible outcomes that can be from these kind of situations from approaching somebody like a lawyer or 
the police? Absolutely. So the police can obviously investigate and potentially charge somebody with domestic abuse offences, and that could lead to a criminal conviction. But on the on the, the what we call the civil side, the family law side, there are other remedies available in the family courts that don't necessarily involve the police and criminal proceedings. So the two most commonly used remedies for victims of domestic abuse are what we call non-molestation orders and occupation orders. And they are really powerful um, types of orders that can be made to protect victims of domestic abuse and their children. A non-molestation order would prevent the perpetrator from contacting the victim or coming near them. And an occupation order can ultimately prevent the perpetrator from actually coming into the, the property, the family home. So really powerful orders that we can help our clients obtain in the family courts. I think I'm I'm surprised that there are steps that you can take without having to press charges or take action, police action against a partner. So I think that'll be a huge relief to a lot of people that you don't necessarily have to take police action for anything to be done or to protect yourself. Yeah, it's something that we would obviously discuss with our client in the initial meeting. And these cases are always very fact specific. But when we meet with our clients, we would take a very detailed history, a detailed chronology of everything that's been going on. And we would help formulate a plan as to the next steps. And, you know, that may or may not involve a report being made to the police. Right. So it doesn't rule it out completely, but it's it's possible without a police report. That's right. Great. Thank you, Lena. So you mentioned some great resources there. What other support is out there for people who are the victims of domestic abuse? So lots of support is out there for people who are the victims of domestic abuse. And um, as I've mentioned, legal advice, taking early legal advice is always advisable. NHS website is a really good one. There's lots of information there. There are some really good websites out there that contain a wealth of information and resources. So, for example, the Women's Aid website is very informative with lots of information. There's also the Victim Support website, which, again, contains a whole wealth of um, information and resources. Refuge, the National Centre for Domestic Violence as well. So really multiple different organisations that are able to help and provide support for people that are living with domestic abuse. And I should also mention that the support is not just aimed at people that are themselves suffering from abuse, but also for people who fear that a family member or a friend is suffering from abuse. So if you're worried about somebody, then you know, these organisations will help or a solicitor will be able to help and provide you with that legal advice. That's a surprise. So, so for example, if you suspected a friend or a family was the victim of domestic abuse, I could approach a lawyer to get advice independently and then provide that advice back to the person. That's right. Absolutely. And in fact, I've just met with some clients in the last week or so who are in exactly that situation, very worried about a family member. They don't really know um, who to turn to or what to do. So I have been able to give them that initial legal advice that they need in order to know what steps they can take in order to to protect their family member. Thanks, Lena. And on that getting legal advice suggestion because I I mean my thought is you've no idea what the possible outcomes are if you don't get advice from an expert and of course a lawyer is an expert in this case so for those who might be nervous about contacting a lawyer or getting legal advice can you describe the steps and how they would do that Sure. So we really try and make it as easy as possible for our clients. We understand how stressful it is. We understand how daunting it is. So we offer a fixed fee meeting for our new clients where they would come into um, our office. We've got an office here in central St Albans. All the meeting can take place on Zoom where we would talk everything through in that meeting in a lot of detail, really get to know the ins and outs of the situation And prior to that meeting, we ask our clients to complete a form online. Um, Obviously, it's um, entirely confidential. 
and they can provide written details of the situation. And that really helps us make the best use of the time in the meeting. So we do try and make the process as smooth as we possibly can. And I'd imagine filling out the form before you go into the meeting probably helps you put your thoughts in order, get your kind of a big picture of of what's going on and helps you prepare. Exactly that. And the form asks various questions and it has various prompts. So it really helps our clients to focus on, on the background context and it enables them, as you say, to kind of get their thoughts in order prior to that meeting so that we can focus on the really important points. And it also gives you a chance to prepare in advance of the meeting too. So like no, no time's wasted at all. Exactly. It means that we can make the best use of the time in the meeting rather than having to spend half the time gathering background information. And um, we would already have that in advance. So it's it's a really, really smooth process. Thanks, Lena. And uh, it's such an emotional issue. And you can imagine or I can imagine that that anybody who is taking that first step is potentially traumatized by the situation. So having the time to think through the situation and write it down in advance is probably a huge, huge help. And Absolutely. Often when people come and seek that initial legal advice from us, you know, of course, their emotions are all over the place. It can be very difficult to to talk about these things. So having the opportunity to set out the key information prior to the meeting, I think is is really helpful. That's great, Lena. Thanks for thanks for that. Thanks for explaining the situation because I'm sure that will help and reassure anybody who's listening who thinks, you know, okay, this this sounds like a process I can go through. It's not not as daunting as perhaps people would have thought. That's right. And you know, all of our clients can be assured that we, as I said at the beginning, we're family law specialists. It's all that we do day in, day out. So we have a real wealth of experience dealing with these cases and in particular, these very sensitive cases that do involve issues of domestic abuse. And before we let you go, Elena, just one last question. I mean, you must have seen quite a few examples and met quite a few family members over, over the years. Have you got any words of advice for people who are in situations of domestic abuse or are considering calling for legal support? My advice would be there is so much support out there and taking the first step is the scariest thing. Once you've taken that first step and accessed the support, then we can really help make things better for you. So my advice would be speak to somebody access the support that's available and we will help you through what is an incredibly difficult time, not only for our client, but also for any children that are also involved. That's great. Lena, thank you so much for joining us on The Parents Show and for sharing your advice and incredibly helpful information to help our listeners navigate this topic that, um, yeah, sadly, it's it's prevalent and we've got to get the facts out there so people are, are tooled up. Absolutely. It was um, really nice to speak with you, Lydia. Thank you for having me. Pleasure. Thanks a million for joining us on The Parents Show, Lena. Thank you. So that's Lena Gardner from Raiden Solicitors joining us on The Parents Show. Hello and welcome to Harfleshire's Mix 92.6. This is Andrea Nicolai and you are listening to The Parent Show. It's such joy to be with you on a Thursday evening. Hope everyone is doing okay, staying healthy and happy. The topic that I want to approach tonight will be parenting when having children with uh, disabilities and everything that this involves like lifestyle, challenges, systems and blessings. In order for me to do so, I have with me here a dear friend of mine, which uh, I appreciate so much. His uh, name is Rob Johnston, and uh, among so many other things, he's a father to a uh, beautiful disabled child. Hello, Rob, and Hello. thank you for accepting my invite. And thank you for asking me. My absolute pleasure. Would you like to tell us a bit about yourself? Who is Rob as a person and as a parent? Well, I am nearly 55. I um, have three biological children of my own and then two stepchildren. As you said, Callum has severe learning disabilities 
And then I've got an old child who has clinical OCD and a younger child who's uh, typically developed. So yeah, that's just a normal kind of guy. <laughs> just an absolutely, I would say the same thing. <laughs> I would say the same thing. Considering our topic uh, today, with your permission, of course, mm-hmm. uh, I would like to ask you a few questions about your lifestyle as a parent of a child with uh, disabilities, which means I think we will talk more about uh, Callum because mm-hmm. I think yeah. that there are so many parents out there that will relate to your story. How old is he now and with what disability was he diagnosed? Okay, well, Callum's 21 now and he never really had a diagnosis. And this is important because over 50% of children with disabilities do not get a formal diagnosis. His symptoms are global development delay, which is medical speak for he hasn't developed like other children. He does have a diagno- late diagnosis of autism, but that was uh, mainly so we could get him into a wider range of educational courses. He's nonverbal, he's incontinent. So yeah, that's basically kind of generally happy. Doesn't have challenging behaviour like uh, a lot of children with different abilities do have. So we're quite lucky in that respect. Yeah, I mean, I've had the honour to, to to meet Callum. And he, as you say, he's really, really lovely. That was one of my, my questions, which you kind of answered. When was his uh, disability first noticed? Well, his birth mother worked for years with people with learning difficulties. So she spotted pretty much straight away that he was different from other babies and no one really listened to be honest until a bit later on but it became quite apparent from you know from not hitting milestones that typically developed children would like turning over sitting up walking that he was going to have problems as I say he's he's non-verbal so he never had speech didn't sit up himself till about 18 months and didn't walk on his own till about maybe four years old. So an official recognition was probably about 15 to 18 months that we managed to persuade, you know, professionals that there was an issue. Okay, yeah, I, I understand what I understand what you say. It, it, it can be uh, quite a tedious process, and especially you as a, per, a parent, you you do see it and you do feel it. Now, I know there's some parents that. Uh, intend to to get scared easier than the others or be a bit more dramatic than the others but every parent notices when something is wrong with their children and then it it is that process when you have to knock all the doors and so on Mm -hmm. and send all the emails in order to to get something that it can help your 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 child does that mean that he needed all around care from day one to this present moment He quite quickly, uh, because food is a good driver for Callum, so he was able to feed himself after maybe three or four years, but personal care has to be done for him. So washing, toileting, changing of clothes, can't do any of that himself, never has been able to, and to this day, he does have one-to-one care. He doesn't have any specific medical issues, which a lot of people have severe learning disabilities do so that's uh, a godsend for him Mm -hmm. Um, but yes his his day-to-day is very much he is with a carer a majority of the day while he's awake yeah yeah and that uh, that did mean that uh, you were in that position for so many years Uh, yeah many people are I mean to start with just a little bit of background Callum's birth mother died when he was about 15 months old So for a couple of years, I was relying on a support network to help me as a single parent working, which if anyone's got a support network, just cling on to it as much as you can because you will need them. And as your child gets older, you'll need them more and more. And then I was lucky enough to meet somebody else a few years later and we blended our family. And I I think we'll probably talk about families as well. And having someone with severe disabilities in the family does affect everybody in the family, including all the children. So that's an important point for people to remember. If if you're living with a situation, you know this, but people around might not realise the impact that somebody has on literally everything the family does. 
Yeah, I can only imagine. I've been uh, around you uh, and your family as a friend, and I, I got the chance only to notice a few things. That's why I've always said I admire and I appreciate people like you because who is not in your shoes will never understand. We mm. we can only have a slight idea about what that lifestyle yeah. and the challenges that that can uh, happen. How was uh, for the other siblings to have Callum around? Was it uh, helpful? I think they found it difficult. Certainly the ones that uh, came into the family or, you know, are older than Callum because their life changed completely from having a fairly, you know, carefree, I suppose, family life to all of a sudden the focus goes on one particular child in that group. And I think that can cause resentment sometimes and, you know, missing out on things people take for granted like family outings holidays abroad things like that Callum does have one younger brother who obviously didn't know any different because he was born afterwards but I think even so it's it's difficult for siblings to uh, sometimes understand that they can't always have the full attention even if we want to give it to them Yes, yes, that's that's absolutely true. We can notice, generally speaking, that that uh, life can be challenging when you're having children, right? Now I can, yeah, I can uh, understand where you're coming from, but I think that with all these challenges, there 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 were moments, and and I think your children, the other children, learned so much more and more valuable things in life by having Callum around. Well, they, they do. And I think they've, they've learnt acceptance of other people who have got differences, difference of ability. They've learnt resilience, which I think stands them in good stead. I mean, it's not the way you'd want them to learn these lessons, but, you know, these important life skills and strengths are brought out when you're in a situation of adversity, if you like. Perhaps sounds more dramatic than it is, but, you know, they're living through it and have, 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 have learnt these things. No, and, and I think this should be, uh, as a subject, and as a conversation, it should be raised uh, more often because though we know about it, it's it's been known about it and uh, it's been, you know, in media, uh, TV, radios and so on to, to talk about it. I still think that, that there's a feeling there, that there's a mentality that hasn't yet somehow settled in when it comes to people with disabilities. It is definitely better Yes. If we compare it to like back in the days, as they say. Yeah. yeah, I agree. And the difficulty is with people with disability is them accessing the community, particularly people whose cognitive ability is not as strong as anybody else's. So they tend to be, so for instance, Callum will go to college, but his social activities are more likely to be in settings where there are other people with learning disabilities rather than people Mm -hmm. who are more able so it's a case of they're not getting in visibility in the community like other people would and that that, that's part and parcel of how they perhaps need to have their care Mm -hmm. uh, more than society not caring about them now considering all the daily responsibilities that you as a parent had, I'm a parent of two boys, but I've never been in this situation. So I can only imagine how overwhelming Mm. both uh, mentally and physically this can be. What was your coping mechanism all all these years? What kept you going? (laughs) Well, to be honest, I mean, we we were a family, so you relied on each other. So my wife at the time, if I was down, she would take off some of the pressure and vice versa. So it's relying on each other. And and to be honest, it's relying on the other siblings. Young carers often have a, a burden on them, which they shouldn't really have at their age. And it's that's another big problem in society is young carers aren't always recognised and aren't always supported. There are services there for them, but it's not always, the visibility is not always there. And, and that has to come through things like schools and uh, social workers and things like that. So it's really important if your child's got siblings, try and get help for them too, because the help is there. It's just finding it. 
It's just finding it. It's like in everything else. Until you find the information, until you get hold of that information, you just have to to access so many websites, to knock so many doors, ask so many questions. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I wish, I wish uh, in in all the systems, uh, I wish things would be um, easier. But yeah, I do admire. I do admire you and your family and your wife at that time. It's been because I've been around you for a while now and you are amazing. And as you said, you do rely a lot on, on the people around you and uh, for them to understand, to understand the, mm-hmm. how challenging uh, this, this can be. I know we've, we've mentioned so far, you know, the challenges in this and how difficult it can be to have a child like this, but what are the blessings? Because I, I can see, I mean, as, as much as a struggle can be, I think there's uh, blessings as well, like valuable lessons to learn. We were lucky with Callum because he, as I said before, is generally predisposed to be happy. It's very rare for him not to have a smile on his face. And it's just those things, those little moments where perhaps he'll snuggle into you and, yeah, he might be dribbling down your shoulder, but he's showing you genuine unconditional love he's not begging for anything he's not asking for extra pocket money he's not saying can i stay up late going on tiktok he's just kids who don't understand those bits of society give you that that unconditional love and affection without asking or prompting that's what you get and um it's priceless I, I could see that, and he's uh, an absolute charmer. He's such a beautiful human being, and, and his energy, it, it can be quite contagious. You are absolutely right. <laughs> yes, true. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Rob, thank you so much for being here with us. Uh, I do hope that we'll be uh, approaching this topic uh, from a different point of view on a different show. Thank you so much for, for being here with us. It meant a lot, and uh, I'm, I'm sure it means a lot for so many parents out there that can relate uh with yeah. your story thank you thank you for asking me and you know letting somebody have a say <laughs> oh absolutely that was my absolute pleasure thank you everyone for tuning in to the parents show on mix 92.6 be blessed and we'll stay in touch